I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello there, and welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I am your host, Effie Parks. My guest today is a rare disease dad to a son with SMA. He's a psychologist who specializes in supporting families affected by rare disease and disability. He's a speaker, an author, and just such a nice guy. He shares a lot of his own experience throughout the years as a rare disease dad, as his son is an adult now. So there's lots of wisdom to be gained from his expertise and personal experience. Today, we're touching on the stress and the trauma that comes along with a rare disease. So let's get into it. Please enjoy my conversation with Al Friedman. Hi, Al. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to chat with you again. Thank you, Effie. I'm honored to be. Yes. We've been trying to make this work for some months and, you know, everyone knows how it goes. So we're here now. We've made it. And I'm really excited to introduce you to the listener because you're a rare breed and we've been seeing a lot of those around here lately but especially you're a rare disease dad and you're also a psychologist. So we're going to get into it today. But first, can you give me a little background about yourself and you as a dad and your son? Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Effie. My son's name is Jack, and he was born in 1995. A healthy, spanking brand new eight and a half pound baby, born healthy in Philadelphia. Six months later, he wasn't sitting up and he wasn't rolling over as babies are supposed to do. Mom and dad didn't know that because he was our first. And the pediatrician told us that he wasn't developing normally and that we should take him to a pediatric neurologist. So four days after that, we learned that our son was diagnosed with a then untreatable condition called spinal muscular atrophy or SMA, a neuromuscular disease. And we were told that baby Jack wouldn't be with us more than another year from the time of his diagnosis. We were pretty traumatized by the diagnosis and the prospect of losing our, our baby. 25 years later, I'm so blessed to tell you that Jack is still with us. He's now 26 years old, and he is uh, a big job, but I'm so blessed to have him. He's uses a wheelchair and a ventilator and a feeding tube and has nurses taking care of him along with us, but he's happy and he's smart. He has almost 3,000 Facebook friends and two part-time jobs. And although he can't use a computer mouse, he types 20 words a minute with his left eye as the mouse with a special eye gaze control device. He drives his chair independently and uh, he brings out the best in everybody. So uh, 
uh, 300 nights in the PICU haven't been easy over 20 years and a tracheotomy about five years ago and lots and lots of medical adventures, many, many challenges, but I'm so lucky to be his dad and so lucky he's here guiding me and in his own way helping other families who face similar challenges. And bringing tears to my eyes, uh, I follow Jack. Uh, what an incredible story. And especially just a couple days after even really realizing that something serious was going on with him and being told he wasn't going to live. I I mean, I can't imagine, but I, I, I almost can't imagine having that be the news that you get right up front. And you said you were traumatized, like what kind of trauma that brought on for you. Were you a psychologist at the time, or is that something you went into because of this experience? Oh, well, ironically, Effie, I was finishing my doctorate in counseling psychology, and in my year of internship, after getting a, my doctorate completed, so I was a newly minted psychologist just out of school in the middle of my internship year when Jack was diagnosed. So I had already planned to be a psychologist. But I, I hadn't planned on needing one so acutely while I was in the middle of my internship. Uh, so I found myself self on, on both sides of the therapy room pretty quickly that year. I had been a, a teacher. I had been an elementary school teacher in my 20s and returned to school um, after eight years of being a teacher to become a child psychologist. So that year, year was very intense. And I learned a lot from the kids I work with in that internship who had no idea how my life had been flipped upside down. But they inspired me because the kids that I work with at that time had, were in residential treatment facility and had no parents taking care of them and had been through very traumatic experiences themselves as children. And they didn't know how much they helped me because they, I thought to myself, well, these kids can get out of bed in the morning and eat their breakfast and go to school given what they've been through, and so can I. So uh, I was helped by a wonderful supervisor through that internship while uh, reeling with the news of uh, Jack's diagnosis. I'll never forget that year and always be grateful for the people who supported me at a time when I was uh, needing a lot of help while I was in my training to be a helper. Yeah, I mean, I guess you were in the right place <laughs> at the right time for sure to like have <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something to grab a hold of in a time of... Yeah. You know, perhaps hopelessness and despair, maybe. I was asking myself, how do you survive losing a child? Um, how do you have this beautiful baby that you're attached to, attaching to, and then have them taken away from you? That's what it felt like. And um, so it felt like Jack was taken away and then kind of given back to us for a short period of time. And that short period of time, has expanded to 25 and plus years, he's 26 now, which uh, nobody would have predicted at that time. Uh, so every every birthday was a big birthday and, and still is. Um, so it's it's a bit surreal uh, rewinding the tape that many years back, but that's what happened. And uh, thankfully for our families who have babies with SMA now, there are treatments, there are three treatments, and Jack's now benefiting from one of them, Although he's severely weakened by the disease already, uh, the experience for our new families with new diagnosis is, is different because there's gene therapy for SMA and two other treatments. But back then there was, as you said, very little hope. So you know, hope was a scarce commodity and I needed to turn to other people to find hope and to know how to 
move forward in the face of such adversity. And I'm well aware that there are many other parents who have kids with rare diseases who find themselves in, in similar situations because most of these conditions, as you know, don't have treatments yet. Um, so um, I can relate to the experience of many young families who find themselves faced with these challenges. I mean, it's like, where do you even start? I see, I can't go a day without seeing multiple posts from uh, families in my groups, various different groups of parents talking about living with PTSD, living with grief, living with trauma, all stemming from, you know, the birth of their child and that search for the diagnosis and then the diagnosis and then grappling with the diagnosis. And then perhaps what you were feeling of maybe eventually losing the child and then not losing the child, but maybe living in fear of that the whole time. I mean, how it's a constant like fight and flight mode, Al. And I don't think that there are really any resources that are kind of given to families at this time in the rare disease community. There's so much unknown, which is another pain point. So I guess here's a question. Can you break down what people mean exactly when they say they're living with trauma or PTSD. Can you explain the difference between the two of those or if they're the same to really help people maybe understand what they're feeling? Well, uh, PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's a, it's a form of trauma. A trauma can take on many forms. And I think as a, as a psychologist, and I work with many of our families faced with these challenges with with rare diseases, the first thing that's important for my clients to know is that you're not crazy. The situation is crazy, um, but you may have symptoms that make you think you're crazy. I myself, when Jack was diagnosed, uh, had a number of symptoms that were very unusual that made me wonder if I was losing my mind. And I was a psychologist. So it's really important for, in terms of trauma, to understand that the symptoms are real, um, but you're not crazy, the situation is crazy, and the type of symptoms that we might have as parents um, are what I would call a normal reaction to a crazy situation. And many families ask me, is this normal, Dr. L? Is it normal that I... Uh, feel so sad and cry every day? Is it normal that I lay awake at night and I can't sleep? Is it is it normal that I'm worrying that something else bad is going to happen to me uh, or my family? Uh, in my experience as a professional, the answer is yes. It's a normal reaction to a very unusual set of stressors. Um, in my own case, I remember after Jack was diagnosed, uh, uh, being afraid to drive uh, in the highway, I was in the right lane going 40 miles an hour. Sure, I would get in an accident. Um, if this could happen to Jack, something else would happen. I was afraid to light the fireplace in the house we were renting during that internship. I was sure I'd burn the house down. Um, I had visions of Jack when I would walk down the street and I saw a, ch a small child and walking and then realized, no, that couldn't be Jack because he'll never walk. Um, it, your mind plays tricks on you in different ways did on it, this happen with me myself and so because i've experienced this trauma myself personally it's um, 
easier for me in my work as a as a practicing psychologist to understand these symptoms that other people have in similar situations. So I'm just touching on the tip of the iceberg of the question you're asking, Effie, but I, I can speak to it from personal experience, maybe even more knowledgeably than from professional experience, because I, I've lived it um, and understand it at a very primal parental level. And the uncertainty of not knowing what the diagnosis would be. The first doctor that looked at Jack said, I think he may have a neuromuscular disease, but we didn't know for four days. And I think those four days of not knowing were harder than knowing, as hard as the news was, because for those four days, my mind was, again, playing tricks on me and sort of torturing me. And we could have, maybe he was wrong and we have a, a normal, healthy baby and a doctor was wrong. That's what I wanted to believe. Or maybe our baby would die. Or maybe I'd have one of, I only understood neuromuscular disease at the time from Jerry Lewis's telethon with muscular dystrophy. And I thought, well, we, I might end up being the dad of one of Jerry's kids. And I, I, I could never handle that. And for four days, I sort of, tortured myself because of the uncertainty, that was really painful and complicated. And so families who have a child with symptoms but no diagnosis and all that uncertainty, I only had to wonder for four days before getting that horrible news, but it was at least clear. And I knew what we were dealing with after the definitive diagnosis. But your question about trauma also leads me to remember that period of time of uncertainty which was so complicated in a very different way than the certainty of the diagnosis and the prognosis at the time. Yeah, the uncertainty, that's definitely something I wanted to touch on too for just another way that these feelings, these emotions, these symptoms are amplified. There's so many layers to it. And like you said, it's it's complicated and it's unique. It's unique. I feel like we all definitely have many of the same struggles, 100%. If anyone understands, it's the families that are going through something similar, but it's really complicated. And I think it can also play out differently for just your own coping mechanisms that you were raised with and perhaps the adversity you faced or you haven't faced to allow you to face this in whatever capacity you can. It's That's right. That's absolutely right, Effie. And the we're all different, and our and these situations that play out in our families with rare disease are all different, and the conditions are all different. But your point is also well taken. As as Dr. Al, I'll tell you that what we bring to the table prior to this traumatic moment in our lives, it changes our family with a diagnosis like this, matters too. And some people have previous experience with adversity or with trauma, which can either can help them and or hurt them when they're in this new situation. Uh, some people are more vulnerable than others to anxiety before having a child with a rare disease or having a rare disease themselves. Um, people can be predisposed to different types of mental health conditions or depression or anxiety unrelated to rare disease. So there's another set of variables there that play into the mix that are very important and very real as well. And this is my day-to-day, -day, my day job, so to speak, is helping people with and without uh, disabilities and rare diseases uh, and, and helping with their mental health and understanding what they're experiencing and why and what's contributed to that. 
So there are environmental reasons, stressful environmental reasons, like a diagnosis of a rare disease or outside of yourself, something happens to you in your life. And there are things that are chemical and biological that are inside us that can leave us uh, predisposed uh, or vulnerable uh, to symptoms unrelated to what's happening outside of us. So that's the way I kind of, as a professional, uh, conceptualize the, the folks that I'm supporting and also how I help understand myself and my own responses to stressors. Meanwhile, you got to get up and brush your teeth and go to work. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the easy part. Yeah. Does <laughs> does trauma and or PTSD ever really go away? Or do you just get more skilled at using tools to kind of manage it or work through it? That's a great question. Everybody's different, Effie. And in my own case, it's very, very different to have a 26-year-old. I have years and years of practice and experience with so many different situations. So practice helps with anything. And so most people in the beginning of a journey with rare disease are understandably much more fragile, have more pronounced symptoms because our, our lives are flipped upside down. We're disoriented when we find ourselves and have launched into the twilight zone abruptly, a place that we didn't expect to be. Um, that's what my son's diagnosis felt like. Like I was launched into this other world that most people couldn't possibly understand. And you're by yourself out there in the twilight zone and you were launched there abruptly. So you're, you're topsy-turvy, upside down, like, like, a, like a shoe in a clothes dryer. You can't possibly orient yourself emotionally with something so big and so abrupt happening uh, to you. And after a period of time, you, you get your feet under you and, and you reorient to this new world. Then you meet other people who have also been launched in the twilight zone. This is why I so admire and respect what you're doing to have this podcast, to have people have the support of each other. And I consider it such a, an honor to be part of this, to help other people as I've was helped by so many along the way and still still am. So you you find other company out in the twilight zone who understand you and then you get reoriented and you get some practice at this new world that you're living in and things get a little less hard, let's say. That being said, go back to the PICU for the 14th time and you hear the sounds of the machines. This is again, my own experience and many I know hear the sounds of those beeps and the monitors and the, and you, and the smells of that unit and, and it brings back memories that are very difficult and, and that's still the case. My son Jack thinks it's a fun thing to do to go on a social visit to the PICU because the nurses and the doctors to him are extended family and he spends so much time there that he thinks it's a great time to go back. We go on Thanksgiving and bring them turkey. You know, we feed them. This is like our, our family. And I'm serious. It's like for 12 years in a row, that's what we do on Thanksgiving. To Jack, this is like a great social event. It's coming home to people he trusts and, and who helped him through the hardest of situations. For me, I go back there and I'm happy to bring the turkey and see everyone. But I hear the sounds and the smells. I, I, I smell the smells. I see the sights. I hear the beeps of the ventilators. And it brings me back to very late nights and very difficult times where we spent a month at a time when Jack was very, very ill. So it triggers memories is my point. And I'm always thrilled to get back out of that building 
afterward as happy as Jack is to visit. That's just one small example of of uh, things that bring you back to a place where you were at another time that are very complicated and very painful. I consider that a normal response for me in, in a complicated environment for me. And that's how we all are in depending on our journey and where we've been and what the context is, we will have these responses that you can call trauma, you can call a lot of things, but that's what they are and they're real and, and we all have them if we're on this journey. They're just all different uh, for each other. I, I hope I hope this helps. This is a complicated experience to describe. You know, It is, but you're making, I love the way you're explaining it and it's bringing up so many other thoughts and ideas because especially, I loved your shoe analogy in the dryer and it's like one of the most annoying sounds. So I think it fits perfectly with the chaos. But yeah, back to the experiences of being in the PICU, of going back to those places that have trauma for you. You know, I was just thinking about a friend the other day who can't go to children's without obsessively washing her hands the entire time she's there because her child was, you know, in isolation for however many months. And she was terrified that she would bring in a germ when she visited. And her son's perfectly healthy now and everything's great. And she can't not do that. And it's nice to hear. I think it's nice for some people, especially those that are highly activated by certain smells and certain environments to hear that those responses are normal and it's okay that they still have them. That's right. They're normal responses to an unusually stressful set of conditions. Some people may be more vulnerable or sensitive than others to that same set of conditions. But being a parent of a child with a rare disease and a PICU in an unusual medical situation is a acutely stressful set of conditions to manage. So you're not crazy, uh, is my message. The situation's crazy. And it's reasonable to seek support and uh, and to want support when you're under that kind of stress. I needed it too, and still do. Yeah, I mean, what are the long-term effects to living with chronic stress, anxiety, depression, whatever, all of the things? And maybe what are some of the big red fire truck warning flags that perhaps the situation, it could be a little easier for you if you got help in one way or another, or if it's becoming maybe dangerous. A lot of the most complicated things I see, Effie, as a practicing psychologist are solved by looking at three very basic things. How are you sleeping? How are you eating? And are you getting exercise? You'd be surprised at how many different types of situations and symptoms trail back to those three basic things. None of us can function well if we don't have enough sleep and if we don't have enough proper nutrition. And we all function better if we're active and, and we exercise for many different reasons. So when I work with families and, and, and clients, if there's sleep disruption that's significant or appetite disruption that's significant, people aren't getting out and active enough, which has been even more complicated with COVID, obviously. I'm oversimplifying, but it can be that simple many times. To your question, all the research shows that long-term chronic stress can impact your, your health, your overall physical health. If you're mentally and emotionally stressed over a long period of time at a high level, it can wear you down and it can affect your physical health. 
so it's really important. You hear that phrase, care for the caregiver, a little too often in a way. It's a, it's a little bit of a canned phrase, but it's really important. We can't take care of our kids and our family members if we're not healthy ourselves. It is important to be mindful of how we're functioning, how we're eating, how we're sleeping, how we're thinking, how we're feeling. And if we're disrupted to the point at which our, our day-to-day, uh, these symptoms are interfering with our day-to-day functioning, that's the signal to seek help uh, from somebody, whether it's a, a peer or a peer support group or a friend or a family member or a professional. You want to not keep that to yourself if you're struggling to the degree to which symptoms are interfering with your day-to-day. Because we can't take care of our kids if we're not functioning ourselves. Uh, and I also, by the way, can relate to your friend with the uh, hand washing in the hospital. My own patients, a couple of them thought I had OCD because for years, but way before COVID, I was washing my hands and using Purell. I could have done a commercial for Purell because <laughs> I should have done a commercial for Purell because of being so vigilant about trying to protect Jack from illnesses. A common cold would put him in the PICU. And so I was trying to be so careful not to get sick myself and to bring germs home to the point at which I was I was making sure uh, overusing Purell and overwashing my hands just from habit and from fear essentially, you know, so that I can relate to that, your friend. And that's, again, another normal reaction to a very acute set of conditions. Well, I definitely resonate with the no sleeping thing. When I had a lack of sleep, it was, I've never felt a level of crazy as I did when that piece of the puzzle was missing completely. That is torture. And oof. it also just sounds simple, right? Like, You just need to eat healthy, go outside and take a walk and get some sleep. But those three things seem extremely difficult to get done sometimes. And also, I feel like I hear a lot, too, just in the in the noise of it all of people saying, I do that. I can't do that. Or that's not going to help. This problem is bigger. Whether I'm stressed out forever or not, or I just am like extremely traumatized from the one beginning crash landing of it all. I mean, in theory, you are stressed out the entire time, right? right. So right. how do we make sure to not burn those telomeres on both ends? Because most of the people, everyone in the rare disease community is living at some level of chronic stress at all times for the rest of the time. So how do we ensure that it's it has a nice baseline, I guess? I mean, I don't even really know how to to really ask that question properly. No, no, I, I, I get the question. And I get the question because I was Jack's night nurse three nights a week for 10 years. And I get the question because I've spent 150 of those 300 nights in a picky with him. And, uh, and it's not easy to get good food when you're living in a picky. And it's not easy to take a walk either. So I get the question, and as simple as those three things sound, the way that I, that I would recommend that we view them is as a goal. The goal. Our goal is a good night of sleep. Our goal is healthy nutrition, and our goal is getting outside. We may not be able to accomplish those goals all the time, or even some of the time when you're under stress with the hospital or you don't have help, but as Jack got older, what I realized was that we couldn't do this by ourselves. And 
and it's hard to ask for help. And he was little, and, and I remember thinking, well, wait, if we ask for help, it's like we're not doing our jobs as parents. But there came a point at which I was becoming unhealthy, trying to do too much between work and being a dad under very difficult conditions. I couldn't think straight when I was doing night nursing three nights a week. I was going to work on Wednesday after staying up all night Tuesday, and it didn't work very well. Couldn't help other people when I hadn't slept. So in, in many cases, what we need to do is to learn to accept help from others and to share the burden with others as much as we can and as much as we can allow ourselves to and as much as help is available so that we can get a night's sleep and so that we can take a walk. And that means taking turns with our, our partners or having nurses or, or aides helping us or babysitters. I learned over time that we had to accept help as hard as it was sometimes and, and it still is. The nurse in the house 24-7 at this point when we have nurses. And when we don't, then I'm the night nurse again. So my point is the goal is to find your way to a healthier experience as much as we can have that, given the difficult set of conditions that we're in. And if, the, if it's impossible or the symptoms we're experiencing are disruptive and interfere with our day-to-day, then it is time sometimes to reach out for professional help because again, people with and without rare disease have depression and anxiety and other types of mental health experiences and struggles without rare disease. And as a psychologist, I can tell you, Effie, that sometimes professionals misunderstand a situation. They see a, a child in a wheelchair and they just assume that all the stress and all the symptoms are because of the situation. And sometimes they miss the point that without that disability, without the rare disease, that same person is vulnerable, can be vulnerable to anxiety, depression, whatever symptoms they have unrelated to the rare disease. So that's something uh, paradoxically that I actually see fairly often in my practice. It's missed because the average person who's outside of our community sees visually a, a, a significant disability or medical issue and just assumes that's where all the stress comes from. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. So we have to be able to sort through everything in order to understand where the contributing factors are to symptoms. Why do you think rare disease parents are such control freaks and have trouble giving over the responsibility to their kids and just to the daily, you know, huff of it all and getting things done. And that's an easy one for me, Effie. And again, the fact that I'm a psychologist is maybe a coincidence <laughs> because I'm a rare disease parent who's a control freak too, under in certain ways. I'll tell you why. It's because when you have a child who's medically fragile, and in my case, life-threatening condition, you you want to do everything you can to keep your child alive healthy and alive. And you develop routines. We all develop routines within our families and for our kids. And when those routines work and our child remains stable and alive, we don't want to deviate from those routines, understandably. We get used to something that works, we don't want to mess with it. So the trade-off in having help is somebody comes in 
and may have a different idea about a routine or a different way to do the nebulizer or the ventilator setting or this or that. And I jump when someone deviates from a routine that's worked for so long. So that's why um, we want to keep control of a situation that, that really isn't in our control in many ways. But when it's working, we want to hold on to what is working. And I've learned over all these years, one of the things I've learned is that when I jump as a parent, when a new nurse comes to take care of Jack, they actually sometimes have better ways of doing things than I've been doing for 10 years. But I've been so fixed in my routine and so holding on tight to what works that my peripheral vision is affected and, I'm, and I need to be more open to a different way of accomplishing that same goal, which might even be better for Jack. And so I've learned over the years to try to be open. I, I, my, my reflex is to jump when something someone comes in and does something different, but I've learned to have my ears open. And maybe there's something over, over 10 years that's changed or some, someone knows a different way to do it that works even better. So that's the reason though. And to answer your question, it's again, a normal reaction to an unusual set of conditions. I didn't even, if you wanna, when I traded in the station wagon, I, I remember this, I was telling a friend this last week, Jack went from the little baby in a car seat in the station wagon and when he had his wheelchair, we had to get a different vehicle. And um, I, I was afraid that it would be bad luck to turn in the station wagon. Like, like it's got us this far, he's still alive and he's four. If I turn in this car and I get this van, is that going to change our luck? You know, it's not logical at all, it, but it, there's something primal that happens when you get into a routine that works and things are stable and you don't want to mess with it. And I still don't want to mess with things that work, sometimes to Jack's detriment. And uh, over the years, you, you kind of learn where you can kind of loosen up and, and learn some new things that are also helpful for your child. Man, the logical part of the brain, I've been actively trying to ask questions to that part of my brain more than the other two that have been hounding me for the last couple of years, you know, like the what should have been's and the what could have been's. But I feel like, yeah, is that is that a skill that you really, truly have to learn and practice at to kind of quiet the noise and just ask yourself certain questions like when you need to leave and leave Jack with a new nurse who maybe freaked you out because she like had different lingo than you and was maybe young and freaked you out a little bit. Do you have to ask yourself those questions? Like, are there questions that one should ask themselves when they're faced with a situation to turn over control or to try something new? I feel like I just have so many questions that don't make sense. No, no, it's okay. Now, I understand the, the essence of the question. First of all, I would not recommend that any of us leave our child in a situation that doesn't feel safe. So, and I still don't do that. If the nurse, if there's a new nurse and they're not up to speed fully and up to speed fully means Jack's comfortable having that nurse take care of him. The nurse is comfortable taking care of him and mom and dad are both comfortable. They have to have all the lights green. And once in a while they're green, but a little bit of yellow. And then there's a little bit of yellow. What that means is mom or dad are, are nearby, right? So we don't, leave the house for 12 hours and leave the nurse entirely alone. We make sure there's access to us if there's anything going on that's going to be trickier. But at the same time, we want that nurse to get more skilled and they can't get more skilled 
without practice. So we have to back off enough for the caregivers to have the practice so that we can be 100% confident as much as we can be to get to maybe 99. <laughs> the bottom line is that that our kids teach us, Effie, that nothing is fully in our control. And as difficult as that reality is, everybody's born and everybody dies. And life is uncertain and things can change in an instant for any of us, anytime and all the time. And our kids are, are sort of ministers teaching us, our rare disease kids, that every day is a gift and that we can't control everything. And when we get the hang of this a little bit, that, that we're all living with uncertainty, with or without rare disease, those of us with rare disease have more uncertainty. It, it helps us to take the edge off of our fear a little bit at a time. Uh, and it's sort of a, a Buddhist philosophy of, of, of life that we have to try to adopt as a part of this journey. And it's a great challenge and it's, both a great challenge and a great gift to be able to tolerate ambiguity and to live with uncertainty and to see every day as a blessing with our children. It's easy to say all these things and it's easier for me to say them and feel them 25 years later. Knowing that my son could live another day or he could live another 25 years, I'm never gonna know that. But I've had more practice, I think, than most adapting to this very unusual set of conditions. So if we, if we can, learn how to do that. It's not easy. It can go a long way towards helping preserve ourselves and our, our emotional and mental health and help us to be grounded for our children who need us to show them that we're in control, that we can take care of them and that we're there for them, all of us, that we're present for them so that we don't inadvertently transmit our fear to them, which won't help them. That's a long answer to a short question, and I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a profound response, really. And I think especially when you talked about how even just taking the edge off bit by bit is so impactful. And I think maybe even more so when you're looking at it, just like how we do in developmental milestones, right? We, like, we look at it in inch stones, and those inch stones are just enormous, and I think that's how one could feel when you're living with this kind of trauma and this kind of stress every single day, that when you can take the edge off a little more each time with, you know, whatever goal you're hitting or milestone you're gaining, that it can be transformative. Agreed. I heard that that concept of inch stones on, on an, another rare disease podcast, I believe, at some conference, and I loved it. And as a child psychologist who works with a lot of kids with special needs, that concept with the IEPs and the milestones and the goals, I love inch stones. And so in the context of our conversation today, Effie, we parents can develop and move forward emotionally in, with the same idea of inch stones. We can't do this all at once. I couldn't even talk about Jack for five years, much less get on a, in front of people. I've gotten in front of a whole large groups of people and talk about Jack in all kinds of places all over the world. For five years, I couldn't talk about it with anybody. It took a lot of time for me to get to the point at which I could tell the story without tearing up. And, and then more years and more inch stones along the way for myself personally to get to the point at which I can view 
Jack's life more as a, a gift than a burden. It takes time. It takes practice. It takes exposure to lots of support and a lot of people. And I've just been so lucky to have 25 years to acquire this practice and this experience and be able to pass it on. So many families I know so well uh, haven't had the gift of that many years. And I just feel so blessed to be able to share what I've learned. Bottom line point, though, is those inch stones, a little at a time, a little at a time, they add up. They add up for our kids. And parallel to our kids, amplifying your point that we parents can, a little at a time, a little at a time, get stronger, get stronger, get more confident, and be at more peace with a situation that isn't fully in our control. Yes. Well, I'm so thankful to you as a parent who's 25 years into this journey and with your with your professional career that you've circled back and you're using it as a service, right, to parents of kiddos who are younger and who are beginning this journey. We look up to you. We look up to parents who have been around a lot longer. And like 1995, I mean, that's when just the crappy chat rooms were starting. So the internet wasn't really formed when you got this news or was just beginning so. And, you know, I say this a lot, but I think about parents like you who were given this diagnosis or perhaps not a diagnosis. And where did you go? What was one of the best forms of like a resource that you grabbed onto that helped you in the beginning? First, a quick story. When I called Someone handed me a phone number. I don't remember where it came from, an 800 number. It was so long ago, I called from a payphone to our <laughs> Families of SMA support group. And the friendly woman who was in her living room at the time invented our group, which is now a large group. She told me Jack was a gift, and I'll always be grateful for that because that confused me four days after his diagnosis. I called her back a few months later. I'm chuckling as you mentioned the Internet because... I called her back a few months later. I didn't think I could do anything for Jack at that point. So I was like, Audrey, what can I do to help the group? She said, somebody told me we should have a website. Do you know what a website <laughs> is? Uh, um, that was that was the conversation. So I showed up to my first conference with our SMA national group with five overhead transparencies, having hand-coded the first website for the group and put it on an overhead projector. And then my friend back home pushed a button and they had a website. Um, and I, I know nothing about computers, but that's what she needed. And, and I found out what a website was. It's that long ago. To your broader question about what did I do? Where did I go? The most impactful thing I'd say that happened was making contact with other families. And in particular, I read a story in one of our newsletters written by a mom whose baby had passed. And she wrote positively about Charlie. And she wrote about all the things they did together and how happy he was. And he didn't live past three. And I drew inspiration from the fact that this mom and dad could look back positively at their child's short life. And I kind of secretly hoped that I could survive the experience of losing Jack the way they had. To me, they were a gift to, they were role models to me. And I got the opportunity to meet them and all these years later, I'm still friends with them. And a woman who has SMA, had SMA, who was in her 50s, I met her and, and having read her letter, she wrote a letter in our newsletter, the same one that said, dear parents of newly diagnosed babies with SMA, I know you're upset and you're sad. Um, and I know that this is such a painful experience to be told your baby has an incurable disease. And my parents were told the same thing. And when I was a baby, they said I wouldn't live till three. And when I was three, they said I wouldn't live till five. And when I was five, they said I wouldn't live till 10. 
And my dad didn't know what to do, and he kind of sat around waiting for me to die. And now I'm 51, and I have a partner, and I have a job, and I have an apartment, and my dad's been gone 20 years. So I want you as parents to have hope for your child and your child's future. And I'll be so always so grateful to Mary Jane for writing that letter and then hosting us at her at her apartment in Wisconsin. Uh, I was in grad school in Wisconsin, Madison, and we went to see her in Milwaukee uh, with Jack. We went back there and when Jack was more stable and visited her, but she was a role model and lived close to 60. These are the people that brought life to me as a parent and helped me to see a future, however long Jack would live. Back then, I just wanted to do right by Jack and however long he would live, I wanted to be able to look back like Char Charlie's parents did and know I'd given Jack the best life I could. And I wanted to do what Mary Jane's dad didn't do and have hope for Jack's future, despite how uncertain his future would be. Those are the people who inspired me and who I kind of carry with me, who helped me. And, and they're the reason that I do what I can to help other people who find themselves in this situation. They, they touch my heart and they still do. Uh, that's, that's where I started and uh, I'll never forget those contacts and, and those people and, and little Charlie. Wow, two beautiful stories for sure. I love that. And it just speaks to the power of finding your people and telling your story to become a lifeline for the next one. And I just love that so much about this community in general. You know, everyone always looking to looking behind them to see how they can help when they're still in the thick of it and always will be. It's just, it's so beautiful. It's an obligation we all have to pay it forward. People help us and then we, we help others. And when I help others, I always tell them someday when they say, how can I thank you, Dr. Al, for taking the time to call me across the country, across the world and spend this time and I tell them you're going to help someone else someday, and it, it, that's how you can that's how you can repay me as you pay it to the next person. And some years down the road, you'll do that, and we all do that. We all take turns helping each other, and we do that within our SMA community. We do that within our rare disease community, and um, I like to think that that my son is uh, in his own way helping a lot of other people now through through my work in the rare disease communities and the different rare disease organizations and the pharmaceutical companies and the healthcare organizations. I have the privilege of, of working with, with not only families, um, but professionals who take care of our families and help train them to know how to help our families. So uh, I feel like my son's always with me in this work that I do and Charlie and his parents and Mary Jane and the others, uh, 25 years ago who were there for me are, are with me too. We all deserve the support and we will all pay it forward as we can, given who we are and the skills that we bring and, and what we can contribute. Everybody pitches in, in my experience. Absolutely. I love that you're training other professionals because this is a this is a niche that needs more more mental health professionals understanding the understanding the lifestyle. So that's really important. I'm glad that I can help, and I I, I didn't plan to have both sets of credentials. <laughs> um, I, I I went back to school. I knew I was I was trying to earn a doctorate, but uh, Jack, I think he's I think he's taught me more than anybody ever taught me at school. And, um, and I, I'm just blessed to have him and blessed that in his own way that 
that he can help through debt and and uh, and help in his own way too. Yes. Well, Al, is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with? And perhaps is there a way for them to contact you if they have any questions or follow along so they can see you at a next event? Oh, thank you. I'm grateful for this opportunity, Effie, to join you. I admire and respect the work you've done as a parent and and creating this community uh, to share with each other. And I thank you for having me. My, I guess, only simple message I have for everybody is is never give up and and keep keep your hope alive for your kids for yourselves for your families I, I never imagined in a million years in 1995 that Jack would live this long and be so vibrant and despite all the challenges he faces and that we face with him I feel that he's a real gift and he he brings out the best in everybody around him he gives a gift of perspective. He's a magnet for compassionate people and open-hearted people. So I I never imagined something positive could come out of something so painful. So don't give up and have hope that there's, you find some meaning in the experience and, and, and give your child the best life you can. I'm happy to help anybody anytime with the the time I have available to help. And uh, I can be located on uh, LinkedIn and um, Facebook and Email is al at freedmancounseling.com, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N counseling.com. Welcome to track me down any way you'd like to, if I can be of help to you or, or your family. And uh, thank you so much for having me, Effie. It's a privilege and uh, an honor to be part of your conversation. <laughs> yeah, Al, the, the pleasure's all mine. Thanks for being my guest today and for sharing so much insight and wisdom and just wearing your dad heart right out in front. I love that. So thank you so much for being my guest. And I look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Effie. Thanks for having me. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.